The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, Fed Chair Jay Powell heads for Capitol Hill. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where Rishi Sunak is hoping to build on an improvement in ties with his European neighbors as he heads to France for a summit with President Emmanuel Macron. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, where we're preparing for President Biden to drop his new budget. I'm Ryan Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at President Xi touting intense changes to China's governance. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell. The Fed head will be giving a semi-annual monetary policy report to Congress this week. Also, a look at the strength of the U.S. labor market with the February jobs report this coming Friday. Now, joining me now to talk about all of that, Bloomberg's international and economics policy correspondent, Michael McKee. Michael, thank you for being here. Uh, Lovely to be here. (laughs) All right. Inflation, still stubbornly high. Borrowing rates keep going higher. Consumers are worried despite the strength in the job market and the stock market has apparently stalled. What will Chairman Powell's message to be to lawmakers? What will it be? <laughs> well, higher for longer is going to be the shorthand version of what he's going to be saying. The question is how high and for how long. The latest data have, as you mentioned, not been particularly great. Uh, we have seen strength in the labor market and strength in wages uh, and Consumers have been spending a lot of money, which all would be good in a normal period, but with inflation where it is, the Fed would like to see some sort of slowdown in demand. So the question is, did the latest numbers that we've gotten uh, push the Fed, will it push the Fed to do 50 basis points instead of 25 basis points on March 22nd? And how long do they think they need to leave rates uh, high? Uh, we had some Fed speakers saying at least through the end of the year, uh, we'll see where the chairman is on that. Yeah, we had several top Fed officials talking about being open to bigger interest rate hikes if necessary. Here's what Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari had to say about that this week. There's a lot of attention to the next meeting in March. Is it going to be 25 or is it going to be 50? I'm open-minded at this point about whether it's 25 or 50 basis points. To me, much what's much more important than whether it's 25 or 50 is what we signal in what's called the dot plot. Well, I've got my own dot plot, and it's all about inflation and trying to combat it. How bad is inflation right now? Or how does the Fed see inflation right now? And why does it seem to be getting worse to 
you ask anybody on the street, anybody in a store, you know, it just keeps getting worse. Well, the problem is uh, it, nothing moves in a straight line. Inflation has come down significantly. It was around 9% when uh, the Fed got started, and now we're in the uh, sixes for CPI and the fives for uh, the Fed's indicator, PCE. So we have seen a drop, big drop in inflation. It's about halved, but it's still significantly above where the Fed's target is, the 2% target. And uh, at this point, the easy, low-hanging fruit to uh, bring inflation down, much of that has gone away. We've already seen a decline in goods prices. Uh, we have seen energy prices come down. It's the stuff on the services side driven in many cases by higher wages that still has to be uh, attacked by the Fed. And that's why they're thinking they're going to need to be uh, at a higher rate for longer because they need to have the full weight of uh, the interest rates they've increased hit decision-making in the economy. Now, this, this idea of higher rates for longer to come, will it be a tough sell to Congress? I mean, there's, there's a lot on his plate, Powell's plate, how is he going to sell it to these? And what's the reception going to be? First to the House, then to the Senate. <laughs> well, uh, the Fed chairman is always caught between the two political parties up on Capitol Hill. Each one will try to uh, turn the testimony to try to see if there's some support from the Fed chair for their political views. In this case, it's the Democrats who are worried about interest rates being too high for too long because they're worried about unemployment going up. And usually when unemployment goes up, the uh, the, the lowest on the economic scale suffer the most. Uh, the answer to that, Powell will say, is we don't think we have to have unemployment go up a lot because the market is labor market and the economy are so strong it can withstand some higher interest rates. Uh, Republicans will counter that by saying, while the economy is so strong, inflation is not coming down fast enough, so you need to do more. And Powell will try to steer a course between the two of them, uh, protecting the Fed's independence and saying, we, we will do what's best for the economy in our best judgment. And laying out those goals for the economy, for his policy, for interest rates, I mean, he's not going to win against a divided Congress, is he? You, you can't ever win up on Capitol Hill. Um, <laughs> no matter what the Fed chairman says, somebody is going to uh, be unhappy with it. And many of them will give speeches rather than ask questions because that's what politicians do. One of the interesting things uh, to watch is going to be what he says about the debt limit. Uh, that's going to be a question that someone will bring up. And he has largely avoided any kind of characterization about what it would do to the economy. He says only there is, there's only one solution, raise the debt limit. And I'm not going to talk about it beyond that. But you can imagine that both sides will try to get him to comment in some way. Uh, and it's also totally out of his purview. That is Congress's problem. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, it's an economic issue for the U.S., so the Fed chairman has credibility on economic issues, so they'll try to get him to uh, – the Republicans will ask him to say that uh, we need to cut spending significantly because we're on an unsustainable fiscal path, which he has said before. He just hasn't said that you need to do it today. Uh, and the Democrats will say, well, you're going to crash the economy if you breach the debt limit and default, and he doesn't want to get in between the two sides. Got it. All right. 
Michael, let's turn to this Friday's February jobs report in the state of the U.S. labor market. Boy, did we have a real surprise in January, over half a million jobs added. The unemployment rate, the lowest since 1969. First-time jobless claims the last few weeks, have, have we've seen an upside surprise there. What are we looking at for the labor market for jobs added in February? Well, we're kind of in the same position we were a month ago, where economists are looking for a significant slowdown from last month. They're looking for about the same number that they forecast last month, 220,000, and an unemployment rate that's unchanged at 3.4%. Both would be very strong numbers. It's a little harder to characterize the total jobs numbers in, in that way because of 517,000 jobs in January. But a lot of people, a lot of economists think that that was a function of the weather and some seasonal adjustment changes that the BLS makes and so that it should come down. But at this point, there doesn't seem to be any significant sign in any of the other indicators of labor market strength that would suggest we're seeing the kind of results that the Fed is expecting, a rising unemployment rate because demand is falling in the economy. This is a completely different time. We're coming out of the pandemic recession, and employers couldn't find workers for a very long time. And in some sectors, they still can't. And so it seems that at this point, companies are holding on to workers rather than uh, letting them go as they might ordinarily do when the economy slows. And anecdotally, we hear of tech sector workers being laid off en masse at some big companies finding jobs elsewhere, whether it's the auto industry. Yeah, well, the tech industry is, those are high-skilled people generally, and so they can find jobs more easily. I remember a CEO of a tech company telling me a couple of years ago, every company is a tech company now, because we all have websites and we all have technology that needs to be maintained. So there are jobs out there. It's more the people on the lower end, um, you know, construction workers, with, with housing slowing, there should be an impact on construction but we haven't seen it yet. Uh, retail sales, there should be an impact on retail sales workers, and we haven't seen it yet. That's what everybody's waiting for, is some of those early signs that maybe the economy is slowing and companies are, don't need as many workers. But that hadn't happened yet. Well, speaking of retail sales, we heard from some major retailers last week. Most reported pretty solid holiday quarterly sales, but just about all of them with weak outlooks for the full year, expecting a big pullback in consumer spending. A lot of worries about the economy slowing. What does this tell us about retailers, about the economy, and how retailers see consumers right now? Well, I think retailers are, like everybody else, reading the headlines and listening to everybody talk about the inevitable recession, the most, the, the longest awaited recession in history, perhaps. Uh, it may be the Godot of, of recessions. And so they're talking at this point like they're preparing. They've, they've drawn up the plans for dealing with a recession, but they haven't put them into practice yet because we haven't seen a pullback significantly in consumer spending. And so where you may see it first is in retail inventories. They may not buy as much stuff ahead of time. Uh, the question is, how long do they hold off? Because when you get into June, uh, that's about the time that they start ordering for the holiday season. And they've got to try to make a prediction for the holiday season. And this year, I can imagine it's going to be very difficult. Well, Michael McKee, Bloomberg's international economics and policy correspondent, thank you so much for being here, Michael. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Britain's prime minister meets with France's leader, Emmanuel Macron. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, Biden's next budget and Republican pressure for spending cuts. But first, after the post-Brexit agreement on Northern Ireland reached between the EU and the UK, the British Prime Minister has another important European rendezvous looming as he heads to Paris for a summit with France's Emmanuel Macron. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, Rishi Sunak's trip to Paris falls neatly after he's resolved the biggest beef with his neighbours, disagreements over the post-Brexit trading rules for Northern Ireland. This Franco-British summit is meant to relaunch closer ties between the UK and France after years of strained relations. To discuss what's on the agenda, I'm joined now by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lina Laurent in Paris and Therese Raphael with me here in London. Now, I want to just set up our conversation with a snippet of a Bloomberg interview with Luke Ellis, the CEO of the world's largest publicly traded hedge fund Man Group, expressing a sentiment I think many people have felt after the UK's deal with the EU last week. If we never had to talk about Brexit again, the UK would be more investable. I hope that the last couple of days gives us a firm place to move forward for the relationship with Europe, and that will definitely improve the way people think about the UK. Okay, Therese uh, Raphael with me in studio. How relieved will Rishi Sunak be that this meeting with Emmanuel Macron doesn't have to be about Brexit? Well, I think it's symbolically very important that they're meeting. And the fact that you know he's just got this Windsor framework, the kind of updated, reworked Northern Ireland protocol, makes it more than symbolic because I think it, it, it gives him the opportunity to build on that momentum and try to... Uh, you know, reach some kind of agreement with Macron on mutual areas of interest for Sunak that is clearly going to, you know, be that list would be topped by uh, stopping migrant votes, uh, boats, which was one of his five priorities that he set out um, earlier this year. And, you know, I don't think there's been, uh, uh, Leonel will check me on this, I don't think there's been a bilateral uh a big bilateral since 2018. So so we're really looking at a kind of reset of Anglo-French relations, which have over the, I was going to say years, but centuries, you know, had everything yeah, from it's been a time, know, war yeah, to rivalry to... <laughs> 
um, to alliance. So mm. uh, I think it's quite important. And yes, Brexit, uh, not uh, top of the list for once. Yes. Lionel Leroy in Paris, what's in this for France then? What does Emmanuel Macron want to achieve? Basically, Macron also uh, wants to kind of get over the, the Brexit period, the Brexit hump. Uh, not because France had as bad a time as as the UK. I mean, the fact is that Macron was was reelected recently, while the UK has gone through several prime ministers. But but the whole Brexit effect has kind of faded in terms of France's leadership in uh, Europe. France is feeling a bit cha- uh, trapped at the moment because Germany really seems to be capitalising the most in terms of uh, leadership. In the wake of the Ukraine uh, war, France is kind of having trouble with Germany. The the, the relationship there is kind of stuck. And so I think it's looking around for for friends. And and the UK historically uh, has, as Therese says, it's been an enemy, but also a friend. So you have a kind of frenemy relationship. But the two countries look more alike today uh, than they did around Brexit, because they're both kind of uh, service-based economies that have a a proud uh, history of uh, military capability and intervention. They're both kind of looking for their place uh, in this geopolitically uh, risky world. They've they've both pledged uh, support for Ukraine. And so I think Macron is really going to try to look for uh, defence and industrial policy as his priorities in this meeting. Therese, one of the things that you mentioned it there, immigration and this migration channel across the English Channel, Sunak frames it as being stopping small boats as being one of his key policy goals. What what would look like an advance for Rishi Sunak from this encounter on that issue? Yeah, I think um, there will have to be something concrete that he can point to at the end of this meeting on small boats. And it may be, um, I mean, really problems got a lot worse when the UK, you know, could no longer be part of the, I mean, some could argue defunct Dublin uh, arrangement for returning refugees, but also I think access, you know, maybe to... um, Maybe it's not direct access, but some way of tapping into EU databases, police cooperation, um, you know, that combination of policing returns. I mean, this is a, it's a really difficult issue. I don't think they're going to just somehow snap their fingers and come up with a way of stopping the migrant boats. But, you know, as we saw with the protocol, so much depends on good faith negotiations and so much depends on the trust between leaders and having a different UK prime minister fronting this. I think will has a potential to make a difference. I mean, let's not forget, you know, it was 2021. We had Jacob Rees-Mogg tweeting that the French are still sore about Agincourt and Trafalgar. We had Liz Truss saying, you know, she wasn't really sure whether France was a you know friend or foe. So all of that kind of um, mood music really soured the ability of, of, of these bilateral, you know, talks to achieve anything and you know as Lionel rightly said that the fulcrum of that relationship which is completely off the headlines for years has been the defense and security relationship and that you know, arguably wasn't that affected by Brexit. You know, the Lancaster House treaties that were signed in 2010 between Cameron and Sarkozy, the sharing of nuclear facilities, you know, those were 50-year agreements. Um, and um, I think that the other one was was a like combined expeditionary force. So you, you, things have been at a stalemate since 2016, but the security and defense side of things 
um, are very much, uh, you know, at the heart of that relationship. And, you know, as Lionel says, these are geostrategic twins in many ways. Mm. They're the two nuclear powers in Europe. They're the two powers that use their military as a key part of their foreign policy. You know, they have similar economies and and you know, the, the the big change now is there is war in Europe. And really, I think that just changes everything for yeah. both countries. And that's made this, this um, you know, the alliance and the partnership and the friendship side of this bilateral relationship uh, far more important than the niggling issues between them, whether it's AUKUS, which is obviously, you know, not such a small issue. It was mm. quite important to the French and, uh, and the small boats issue, which is hugely politically important to Sunak. The other issue that Europe is facing as a whole, and I include the UK, so I'm referring geographically, the Inflation Reduction Act posing a question about subsidies uh, rivaling the US. So far, the EU is talking about its plan uh, to rival it. The UK hasn't caught up so much yet. Could this be an area, perhaps, of cooperation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because the EU has come up with its own uh, response. Actually, Lionel's written very well on that recently. And it's, um, it's, it's a complicated response. There are different pillars. Parts of it, it you know, include um, uh, easing the regulatory environment. Uh, but there's also you know, a nod to um, you know, opening the floodgates potentially for more state aid. And that makes um, the UK nervous because it doesn't have its own response. I think you know, it, would, it would be interesting to see whether from the readout there um, are any discussions about coordinating because I think it is Sunak ideologically is is you know w- would be um, an opponent of this uh, you know of, of, of state aid uh, mm. becoming the answer here and and we, because we know that France and Germany the deeper pockets will be the ones to uh, you know throw more at their industries at the same time Britain will need to formulate its own response the only other thing I would add is you know Macron's European political community which was something that you know trust signaled support of is one way that you know the two could potentially also find common ground outside the EU Sunak could potentially throw some support uh, behind that as well. Excellent. Plenty to watch out for. Thank you to our powerhouses of Bloomberg Opinion, Lionel Laurent and Therese Raphael, for your views as we look ahead to that summit, which of course we'll be covering here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, President Biden's budget proposal is about to come out. How much support can he win from Republicans? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. President Biden presumably putting the finishing touches on his 2024 budget request we're expecting to come out this coming Thursday. Joining us now with some insight on what to expect and just how tricky this one will be, Bloomberg Sound On host Joe Matthew. Thank you, Tom. The budget, of course, is a blueprint. It's far from a final version of the president's been talking about some of his top priorities lately. Folks in Congress... They want to eliminate a lot of health care coverage, those mega Republicans. Increased costs for millions of Americans. Joining us now for some insights, Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick, who specializes in the budget process. He covers appropriations, and it's great to see you, Jack. Did we get a clue, or have we been getting clues about the president's budget in the recent string of speeches, like the State of the Union, of course, would be the big one. So this won't actually be much of a surprise when he drops it. The big stuff is not going to be surprising, but it, it is a, there's some nuance here that a, a lot of the president's top priorities that we heard about in the State of the Union, um, when he's gone after Republicans saying, well, now they want to go after your Medicaid, they mm. used to want to go after your Social Security, Medicare, I, I'm going to stop that. A lot of that is what he opposes about things that Republicans have brought up. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not necessarily clear how he weaves that into a budget proposal. Now, I I will say, even talking to members of Congress, over the last week I talked to Brendan Boyle, the top Democrat on the House Budget Committee, who said really the top stuff he's looking for in the budget is protecting and maintaining the things that Democrats feel they have already accomplished, whether it's um, uh, Affordable Care Act, making sure Republicans don't chip away at Medicaid or Mm -hmm. or anything like that, or even making sure the money continues to go out in an infrastructure bill. Um, This does not appear to be one of those budgets where there's one ask that he's making of Congress that's the big thing. It's Mm -hmm. really almost more about what he wants Republicans to not do to the things he likes. But in, in, like you said, preserving what's already been accomplished in the last two years, Uh, You mentioned a major entitlement program, though, and I wonder what we're going to hear about Social Security, Medicare and so on following this sort of endless debate recently with Kevin McCarthy, the new Speaker of the House. Yeah, so that has already started to uh, play out through the debt limit debate. Right. Um, You've heard Democrats come out and say, you know, if we want to get into a conversation separate from the debt limit, about the solvency of Social Security. We could lift the cap on the maximum taxable income for Social Security payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But really, largely, it seems that Democrats and now Republicans are kind of joining them are saying, we're we're keeping our hands off of this. Uh, Republicans kind of feel that maybe they either touched the third rail or got accused of touching the third rail. Mm. But when you look back to the State of the Union, uh, they clearly are trying to make it as explicit as possible that 
there's not really a Social Security and Medicare solvency conversation happening on the Hill. It will have to happen in the next, uh, it's I think 12 years before one of the deadlines, even shorter before another, Mm -hmm. but it's not happening now. So it'd be a surprise if the budget really got into that uh, and and there's no bipartisan will to really start those conversations at this point. It's become a huge talking point, of course, for this president uh, who likes to point to Senator Rick Scott's proposal. And we've talked about it a lot here on Bloomberg Radio to sunset these programs. And that's not what the leadership is saying. Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell have both made clear to your point that Social Security, Medicare are off the table. But the president uh, had a lot of fun with this, it seemed like, at the State of the Union, getting Republicans to to yell and boo, and he's still making hay out of this in his speeches. Everybody who says we're not going to cut Medicare or Social Security when I asked them to join us and reject the cuts in Medicare, wasn't it something? They all stood up. They all stood up. They're all on camera. (laughs) Got all their pictures. Like I said, I believe in conversion. Believe in conversion, as he said that night. This is interesting, though, because Republicans think that he's being disingenuous. He's been actually criticized quite a bit for it, knowing that that is not a, a real debate at the moment, Jack, right? Well, it's clearly not a debate at the moment because anyone who was interested in tying Social Security and Medicare changes to the debt limit have backed off mm-hmm. and said, well, clearly it's not happening now. Part of this is the politics of using the word cut or slash. Mm. If Republicans say um, we should raise the eligibility age, we should do other things to lower the projected increase in costs, like uh, more means testing, mm-hmm. which essentially would be cutting for higher earners. Yeah. Uh, they there are there are Republicans, including you know at, at one point. Last year, uh, Jody Arrington, the new House budget chair, said we we need to use the debt limit to get some sort of policy change or at least process change for major entitlement solvency. And the Republicans are going to come into that saying we want to reduce the trajectory of spending. Um, There are a bunch of examples of lawmakers who have said that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They don't take kindly when you say, oh, so you're going to slash Social Security. Obviously, Democratic politicians are going to hear that. Or kill it altogether. Yeah, Democratic politicians are going to hear that and say, well, that's a cut. There's been such a back and forth on... I didn't say cut. I meant I said maybe we should change the age of eligibility. Um, that it's it, it's spiraled out of control at this point, and that has contributed to the fact that no, clearly the debt limit is not going to trigger some sincere debate over the solvency of these programs. Whenever that happens, it'll be later, mm-hmm. uh, and even in the president's budget proposal or or separate, it does not sound like there's a lot of uh, motivation to have a, a real conversation. So it's a big semantics debate, and that's how we got here, right? And right. we're not going to change this apparently anytime soon, at least not in this budget debate. The war in Ukraine is another big question, Jack Fitzpatrick. This president has been bumping up against some Republican members of the House, even some progressive Democrats uh, who have been tiptoeing around the idea of, you know, not just no blank checks, but let's have a a concerted debate over what we're going to be spending. Now, there are tens of billions approved last year, right, that, that will still likely carry us through this year. So is this Something that will come up again in this budget debate? I don't know exactly when it's going to come up again. It is going to come up again in some capacity. You're right that there was about $40 billion included for Ukraine in the December omnibus spending bill. Mm -hmm. That carries you for a while. Uh, There will be a a more regular debate on uh, aid to Ukraine 
that that was a big supplemental sort of emergency spending bill. Mm-hmm. This when they fund the State Department, and there will be things in the budget proposal that says, "Here's what we want to go through the State Department. Here's the bilateral assistance we want for this country and that country." They have that debate for the appropriations bills. It's smaller than a big forty billion dollar bill, but there is a debate brewing on to what is the extent of the economic assistance we want to send Ukraine through the regular State Department aid, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I will say I, I spoke uh, within the last week or so with uh, Mario Diaz-Balart, who's the new House Republican essentially in charge of funding the State Department through the Appro- Appropriations Committee. He said you, you've got to be skeptical about funding. House Republicans want to cut a lot of spending. Mm-hmm. Even for Ukraine, even for things they might support, they are going to be very skeptical. There are others like Lindsey Graham in the Senate yes, uh, right. who does not agree with that. There's going to be a debate to some degree about regular funding. I would not be surprised if within the next year the the president says we actually also need another big bill for Ukraine. Right. That would be an even bigger fight. So there are, there are probably a couple fights to come so on Ukraine. We're not overdoing this, though, in, in, in covering this in the media that you know the Republicans say no more blank checks. They're walking away from Ukraine. Is it safe to say a majority of Republicans on Capitol Hill still support funding this war effort, as opposed to the conversation happening at CPAC, for instance? To some degree, uh, I think the there, there's a lot of debate, but it's a very mainstream Republican position to say we do need to continue sending aid to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. When you get into the finer points of how much defense aid, how much economic aid, right. which a lot of Democrats would say is extremely important, Republicans get a bit more skeptical. There are differences between how Republicans and Senate Republicans are a difference in how they're going to draft the initial bills and what they're going to do when it comes to, uh, you know, a final vote. Mm-hmm. It, it's um, it, they're, they're a bit fractured. It's hard to pin down the exact Republican position. But, yeah, the the idea that Republicans have walked away from Ukraine, it, that would at least I, I can say that's a, a minority position. It's not the Republican position. Fascinating as ever. You can find him on the terminal. Jack Fitzpatrick at Bloomberg Government. It's great to see you, Jack. Many thanks. Thanks for having me. Tom, back to you. All right. Thank you, Joe. And you can hear Joe Matthew on Sound On, new time, 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time, starting Monday on Bloomberg Radio. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, China's leader Xi Jinping is moving to intensify his control over the country. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. China's president, as we've been reporting, is spending time these days trying to become even more powerful. For a look at why, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague, Doug Krisner. Tom, the so-called two sessions are underway in Beijing this weekend. That's the National People's Congress and the advisory body, the CPPCC. President Xi Jinping is consolidating the Communist Party's grip on power. Earlier this week, he laid out plans for changes to China's bureaucracy, and he spoke of more influence on the private sector. Indeed, and he said those changes would be intense. Now, the party would roll out plans for deepening reform in the financial sector, and officials would exercise exercise more control over the science and technology industries. Joining us now to talk a little bit about what's happening, what's really happening in China, is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Shuli Ren. So, Shuli, some of this that we just talked about runs a little counter to what we thought was going to be the main focus, which is the targets and the stimulus and the economy going forward. Let's talk a little bit about this consolidation of power. What is President Xi up to? I think he's starting to realize that uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party's uh, bureaucracy is not quite working. I mean, we uh, last year we heard a lot of uh, uh, local government debt problem, for instance, right? And a lot of it is uh, um, COVID zero controls and then the government stimulus uh, checks uh, into infrastructure building. But uh, a, a fair chunk is uh, uh, inefficiencies in the system. So I think he's trying to make this whole gigantic uh, um, apparatus working better. On the other hand, there is also uh, power consolidation, right? Like if he want, if he thinks that uh, he is the man who will put China as a CCP in power for the next 500 years, he needs power all consolidating to him, uh, into his uh, inner circles, military, um, economical, uh, and uh, uh, financial. So how much of the, the debt problem for some of the regional uh, governments has to do with the property market and the implosion in real estate? Uh, a lot. So before COVID, uh, local governments, uh, they get about 40% of their income from uh, tax uh, local taxes with the rest 30% from land sales and another 30% from government uh, uh, from central government uh, tax transfers and then because of the the property market slum 30% of their income was kind of gone right that is a big hit and i would like to go back to uh, talking about uh, the conflict between central and the local governments so basically in the early 1990s the central government realized that uh, it, it was getting very poor whereas local governments say like in the guangdong province or in shanghai the economy was doing much better so they changed the whole fiscal system entirely and then basically like the biggest uh, tax revenues su- such as uh, vat the, the value added uh, tax they were all going to the central government. And then the central government will decide, okay, how much money do I give to the local government? As a compromise, they were saying, okay, as a local government, you can sell land and the revenue from that land sales comes to you. And that's why local governments always have incentive to boost its uh, local uh, real estate market because that boosts their land sale value and uh, so on and so forth. And you can see... um, 
a lot of the uh, economic problems that China is facing today comes from uh, the fiscal reform in the early 1990s, during which the central government was taking the bigger chunk of the tax revenue, leaving the local government with less money. Many researchers say that this will mean more party officials uh, at the helm in a lot of state-owned in institutions and with huge influence on private companies. So I think the big question is, is this more about loyalty and control, or is it more about execution and efficiency? Uh, it's both. It's just like uh, asking President Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, is it more about political control or about uh, getting rid of the dirt in the system? I think it's both. Shuli, thanks so much for joining us. Bloomberg opinion columnist Shuli Ren with us. I'm Brian Curtis along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian and Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.